Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they develop to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today we get to learn about a friend and neighbor of our producer, Kellyanne, who, let's be honest, is the secret to the success of this show. Um, But anyway, uh, so Kellyanne, we've got your good friend, Amy Snow here. She is a trust-based relational intervention practitioner. We're going to learn a lot more about what that is, that that acronym, the TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention Practitioner. And she's the founder of a nonprofit called My Healing Home Program. So, Amy, thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today. Oh, we are so glad to have you here. So you are a survivor of trauma. You're the mother of seven children, five biologically yours and two adopted yours. And you've got firsthand knowledge of how these adverse experiences in life can negatively impact youth and into their development. And so you've got this My Healing Home to serve both the families and the caregivers and maybe serve the families through the caregivers, if I understand correctly, caregivers of at-risk children, offering parent coaching, online classes and workshops, in-home visits and more. So to all of our listeners, you can learn more at myhealinghome.org. But today we are lucky enough to learn from Amy herself. So Amy, first, tell us a little bit about you, and then we're going to jump into this new intervention program that, I guess, new to us, not new to existence, but new to us, this approach here. Well, thank you so much. Well, I had trauma growing up, of course, but all of that kind of went to the wayside when I got married. uh, We had five biological kids, and then we had the idea to adopt. So our adoption was quite a traumatic process on top of that. And I I had read a lot of information on adoption. I knew that the children coming into my home would have definitely some risk factors. I knew we were going to have some problems. However, I tell clients all the time, reading about the trenches and actually being in the trenches, totally two different different things. things. And even hearing about the trenches from someone who's been in the trenches, still not the same. Yes. So as much as I thought I was prepared to bring these sweet little boys into my house, I was not prepared at all. And it didn't take very long before I felt like I was losing myself. Mm -hmm. Um, Their trauma was so big, and I had no idea how to parent these two How old were they when you brought them into your home? So they came from Ghana, Africa, and so we don't really have – we didn't really have birth dates because that's not really something that they – prioritize. So I just kind of watched them for a while and then I got to give them their birthdays. Okay. Um, So when they came home, they were relatively six and eight. Okay. Um, So still young children. Very young But old enough to unfortunately have been through some pretty difficult things. Yes. Was this trauma like war related, crime related? No, they didn't see any war, but there was a lot of abuse, a lot of neglect, um, a lot of food scarcity, a lot of physical abuse, and then a lot, a lot of loss. So every caregiver that they had had throughout their entire life, they had watched die. Oh. 
and it's a pretty it's it was a pretty heartbreaking story but they they finally got home and to our home and I was overwhelmed is putting it lightly sure. extremely overwhelmed my husband was overwhelmed and we just did not know how to parent these kids we took them to several therapists several different organizations they kind of kept passing the buck my children didn't have very good language skills and so they would say oh you know they're not speaking about their trauma so I can't help them with their trauma or I would go somewhere and they'd let me cry for an hour about what a horrible parent I felt like and then they'd pat me on the back and say well, you got this. You got this. We'll see you next week. <laughs> oh. And so, and you know, therapy is expensive. And so that was also becoming a matter of contention between me and my husband. And so I, I am a very faithful woman. And so I, I remember one day um, just praying and I just said, I, I don't know how to raise these kids. And the answer came back and I heard someone say, I do. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to not see therapists anymore. I'm just going to drop some things and I'm just going to kind of lean on love until I can figure out a plan. So it was about four or five months later, I received a text from a friend who had also adopted out of the same orphanage. And she said, you're never going to believe this, but I get to go spend a whole week with Dr. Karen Purvis in Texas. And I said... I think you meant to send this to the wrong person. And she said, no, I meant to send it to you. Do you not know who Dr. Purvis is? And I said, no clue. No idea. No idea. Never heard of it. All I need is another child psychologist. And she said, you of all people need this lady in your life. And I kind of dismissed it. But later that night, um, after all my kids were in bed, I, I have a vivid memory of me Googling Sure, on my phone in the dark, on my, you know, laying in bed next to my husband. And as this sweet woman started to talk about children from hard places is what we call it, I felt like she understood my kids and I felt like she understood me and I felt like maybe this was something. So the very next day I tried a couple of things that she had mentioned in the videos that I had watched and everything was different. And I just thought, what is this like black magic? What is happening here? TBRI at the time was a new thing. And so we didn't have it here in Utah. How many years ago was this? So this would have been in 2000, probably 2013. Okay. So a decade or so ago, it's new to you and not not well known in Utah. Not well known in Utah at all. So there was no resources in Utah. Um, So I began to just look for anything that had Dr. Purvis's name tied to it and read all of her research papers. Um, her book had just come out, The Connected Child, read through that, poured through that. As a matter of fact, people laugh because my copy was falling apart. I've highlighted it so much that yeah. I had to get it spiral bound. Oh, um, wow, that's dedication. And so... It's called The Connected Child? It's called The Connected Child by Dr. Karen Purvis. Okay. And so um, things were changing in our house and i realized this was really this was really something this was this was really something and working really well with my with my two children then i realized this works better with my biological kids who i had never really seen as experienced trauma but i think just the fact of me bringing these two new boys into sure. our home that had experienced and trauma and had family. major behavior issues it was it had traumatized my biological kids and so tbri was just a way that i could 
parent them in a way that made me feel closer and more complete. And then I realized, you know, TBRI works with my husband. And TBRI became... (laughs) It is black magic. (laughs) TBRI kind of became a verb in our house. Okay. Because my kids knew that I was doing all these things. And then sometimes I would still, I would lose my patience or something. And they would say, how it's not TBRI mom. Or I would, I would say something to my husband or I'd give my husband two choices and he'd say, Oh, well let's do this then. And then he'd say, wait, did you just TBRI me? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it just became a way of life in our family. But it worked. And And that's why I, I joke, I used to teach high school psychology. And I remember when I was teaching that class, you do start to kind of apply what you're reading and learning and then people around you start to pick it up so tell us what what is tbri so what is tbri tbri is a research-based intervention that is also heavily situated in attachment theory so if you've heard anything about attachment theory we are heavily based on it on that okay tell us a little bit about that for our listeners who might not be familiar so attachment theory was started by a psychologist named um, john bulby it's been around for quite a while so if you've taken a psychology class you may you may have it be it may be familiar to you oh heavens if you're single in the dating world you've heard about it (laughs) (laughs) everyone wants to know what your attachment uh, but your attachment style so is, is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's like it's listed, you, you know. It's on your profile. It's, it's, swipe so, left, swipe people, right. Some people list it on their profile. They're either lying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super That's a secure. Whole story. <laughs> yeah, right. Wink, right. wink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so what it is based on is this theory that when we are born. We have needs and we have this cycle of needs. And so we see that the minute a baby is born. So the baby is born and, and of course, their, their body gets this kind of shock of the real world, right? The first thing a baby does, a healthy baby, is to cry, is to use their voice and to say, help, I'm scared, I'm cold. This is the first attachment cycle um, of a child's life. So the baby has a need. And then hopefully in the best situations, a tender caregiver is there and they meet the need and baby cries and we meet the need. And this happens thousands of times in the first year of life. But for many people, that need is not met. Baby cries and no one comes. A child has a need and no one's there. A child feels unsafe and no one's there to keep the child safe. And so through these... And it can happen on many levels, right? I mean, there was a... And I can't remember what doctor it was, but there was a let your baby cry doctor. Yeah, the cry yourself to sleep. Cry yourself to sleep solution. And I think that that was the most horrible idea. When I I was super into natural birth and childbirthing and childbirth classes and all these things. And so we were really big into attachment parenting you know, we wear our babies, we breastfeed our babies, we do all these things with our babies. So it's like heavily being responsive, especially in those first three years. Yeah, exactly. That's mm-hmm. exactly what it is. And so hopefully that child has that attentive caregiver for those three years. But many of the kids that I work with, and especially my boys that came, and even in biological situations, those needs can go unmet. Mm-hmm. Um so, for instance, say you have a 
you're in a low income home and your mother and your father both work. And, and for most of your childhood, you're, you know, you're left alone to fend for yourself. doesn't mean that your parents don't love you. They're trying their very best, but it does mean that your needs might not be being met. Or then another interesting thing about attachment cycles or attachment styles is that they are passed on. And so your grandmother may have raised your mother in a way that took care of her physical needs, but when it came to emotional needs, kind of fell flat because she didn't know how to deal with emotional part. Right. And so your emotional needs became unmet. And so we have this theory that through that process, we develop our attachment style, which can be a secure attachment style, which tells the world, I, I am a great person. People like me. I'm worthy of attention. Someone's going to come help me if I need help. I am a value in this world. Yeah, and I'm willing is, to ask for my needs to be met as exactly. well. Exactly. I can That's use my secure, voice. Right. Right. But then we have some other um, attachment styles as well. So we can have anxious avoidant where we really need people to tell us that we are good. Mm-hmm. We really need people to praise us, to tell us that we've done a good job. We, we, our worth is really dependent on what other people say and do to us. Mm-hmm. And so for me growing up, I had an anxious avoidant. My value was how my dad was feeling that day. If he was angry with me, I was not worth very much. And that went into my marriage because we carry that with us throughout our adult life unless we make those changes. And then we have the avoidant attachment style, which is usually um, a person that will seek value in things and tangible objects instead of people, which you might be seeing a lot on the dating sites, mm-hmm. I would guess. And then we have um, the disorganized, which is a very sad attachment style. And this comes from um, a child that did not have their needs met. And on top of that, the person that should have been their secure person was also the person they feared. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that attachment cycle in your brain cannot organize. And so when my boys came home, that's what we were dealing with. We were dealing with this disorganized attachment style, and they had no idea how to attach to me or how to connect. So not only that is that they knew how to push my buttons. And I realized I had, I was bringing stuff to the the table as well. And so we would just get into these huge battles, power struggles. And I would throw my hands up in the air and just cry because I just did not know how to raise these kids until I found TBRI. Okay, let's take a break for a quick second and come back and learn more. We'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, so we've already gotten like the teaser of how magical and just effective this is. Let's talk about what it looks like. I see that it's based on the attachment theory. Then what? what is in this training? I imagine you've now been certified. You went from just Googling the, the doctor to, hey, I've got to learn more. Walk us through what it is and how it works and how it might be of value to a parent or other caregiver. Great. So TBRI is based on three principles, and these three, three principles meet the holistic needs of a child. So first we have our connecting principle, and this is the principle that meets the needs of our child's spirit or their soul. We all have needs in our spirit and our soul, and that comes from connection. Then we have our empowering principle, and this is meeting the needs of our body. And then we have correcting principles, and these are meeting the needs of our brain or our belief system about ourselves. So each of our principles have two strategies. With connecting, our strategies are mindfulness and engagement. And I like to say mindfulness is the way we are communicating with ourselves. So as a parent, as a caregiver, how are we showing up? What are we bringing to the table? What triggers do we have? What unprocessed trauma do we have that we are now laying on our child? And it is not our child's burden to bear, right? But we, we do. We show up with our unprocessed trauma of our unprocessed um, experiences. So being mindful is knowing what we're bringing to the table, knowing what, what is affecting us and what, what we are kind of pushing on to our children. Um, and then our second strategy for connecting is engagement. And I like to say that is how we are communicating with other people. So in this instance, how are we communicating with our child? So that would be healthy touch. A lot of the kids I work with don't know what healthy touch feels like. And perhaps when they were younger, they had very unhealthy touch. And so how do we reintroduce what healthy touch is to them? It is eye contact and what we, we like to call gentle eye contact. And when I'm with a group, I will, I will often do this. I want you guys to look at each other. And I want you to look at each other in a way that your, maybe your dad or your mom used to look at you when you knew you were in trouble. You know that look. Or the way I look at my kids at church when they're being too loud. Exactly. So look at each other like that. That look that means like, I'm going to use, I'm going to use your full name. I'm going to use your full name and you know, I know what you did. Right. And think about what that felt like in your body. So when you were looking at each other like that, how did you feel in your body other than silly? <laughs> yeah, besides, I mean, you can you can see the the anger or the kind of the shutdown, like, oh, I'm going to back away. It's certainly not inviting. Yeah, certainly not inviting. And we can feel it in our yeah. body. It creates yeah. tension in our body. Now I want you to look at each other again like you are newborn babies. You know, here's the funny thing. When you ask to do that, I'm like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to see that face. I don't want to make that face. Like, I just felt very rejecting of the whole concept. Oh, so insightful. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So now look at each other like your newborn babies. So precious. What this (laughs) precious person is in front of you and all the value that they have. And that's what we call gentle eye contact. Gentle eye contact. So when we think about how we look at our children, how we're engaging with them, we think about our eyes. Can our child see their preciousness through our eyes? And then we, we talk about voice. So we talk about the volume, the cadence, and the tone of our voice. We talk about playful interaction. We learn so much through play. And play is so interesting. When we are playing, all of, all of our brain lights up. 
We are using our whole brain when we put, when we play. And that's where we want our kids. We want our kids using their entire brains. Um, and then we talk about behavior matching. And by behavior matching, I don't mean they say, I don't want to go to school. And you say, I don't want to go to school. And you mimic them. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about if your child is standing, you stand. If your child is laying on the kitchen floor crying, you lay on the kitchen floor. You meet your child where they are. That's the kind of behavior matching. It also means like if you want to connect, if your child wants to wear the purple shirt, maybe you wear a purple shirt today too and you tw- and you be twinners. We all kind of want to wear you know, the same shirt to say, "Hey, we are part of this team." Like, you know, go Jazz or go Real. We want everyone to know that we are connected somehow. Mm-hmm. So even just doing that or going to get an ice cream with your child and then they order a bubblegum ice cream and then you say, I'll have bubblegum ice cream too. That sounds really good. Your behavior matching and that brings connection. Our empowering principle meets the needs of our body. And so we like to call um, the first strategy, our ecological strategy is the wisdom of spaces. And so it's creating an environment that your child's body can function well in. So that means sensory issues that your child may have. A lot of kids in school, they really struggle with the fluorescent lighting. So can we change Can we change the lighting? I have parents or our teachers that after taking our classes will bring in lamps or get the coverings for the fluorescent lighting just to make it softer and dimmer mm-hmm. um, to help those kids that might be struggling with that. It could be smells. It could be I have a really hard time when I'm on an airplane with someone wearing perfume. Mm-hmm. And so I know that I get ornery if someone around me is is wearing that. It's either the perfume or forgetting the deodorant. Oh, forgetting it. <laughs> I, I have teenage boys, and I feel like I'm I'm in this vortex of the extremes. I have like someone that acts like they just identified a can of Axe, and then and then people that, that can't around? remember. It is can't still remember. around, it, it, and it's just as bad as it was when we were in junior high. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, I it's can't so even bad. Like, has, has nobody learned to just take this off the shelf after decade and decade of young boy has just used it wrong? Son, you know, no. there's ten years apart, there. and then. The youngest son came up and went through that. And I'm like, will I ever get the smell of Axe out of the top part of my nose? So imagine (laughs) sitting in a class having to take a test sitting next to the kid that's like taking a bath in Axe, right? That your brain is not going to have what it needs. It's going to be hyper focused on that. So we also talk about transitionings. Transitions are hard. They're hard for all of us. They're especially hard for kids who have experienced trauma. So we talk about, you know, giving warnings, doing slow, gentle transitions, setting up transition boards with our kids and letting them have the power of saying, hey, these are the things that we have to get done today, but you get to put them in the order that you want to put them in. And then we have routines and rituals. And what I what I like to say is kids need routines. They need they need structure. We know this. But what I love are the rituals. And I like to say the rituals are the those small moments of magic connection that happen within the routine. So perhaps when I put my kids to bed, I give them a bath and wash their hair and then we read a book and say prayers. But maybe those rituals that are in that routine is that I always soap up their hair and make it into a funny unicorn and then I sing a funny song. And then maybe when I'm reading their favorite story, I'm using all the voices that makes them giggle. Right. Those are just those little magical moments that can make them feel what we call felt safety. 
We use artifacts, artifacts that can make our kids feel safe, such as weighted blankets, um, fidgets, and those kind of things. And then we want to regularly be checking on our kids and making sure that they're doing okay in the environment they are. So those are the needs that we have in our environment, our ecological needs. And then we have our physiological needs. And that is, are our kids drinking enough water? Are our kids eating enough food? So think of a time that you were ornery or you were having a hard time and think, could that have been because of low blood sugar? And so we already know our kids are not drinking enough and they're not eating enough. Growing kids need to eat something every two hours to keep their blood sugar level. I still do that with my adult children. Exactly. I'm like, you're really grumpy. Have you eaten today? And they're like, no, I haven't had time. And this and this and this. And this. I'm like, stop. I I'm don't not talking to you until you eat something. You need to go exactly. eat something. Let me go make you something. And then we'll have this discussion. Because right now I'm just dealing with crazy. Yeah. And then also, are our kids getting the sleep that they need? Are they getting the sensory that they need? Are they getting activities that they need? Are they getting too much activity? Those are our empowering strategies. Then we have our correcting principles, and these are the ones that parents are most excited for. But I will tell you, it's the last things that I teach, because if you are connecting with your child and if you, your child feels empowered and their needs are met, you will be using correcting less and less because the need for behavior is not going to be there if their voices have already been heard. But we do have it because it is a guideline. We, we want to give you guidelines to help you. So the first is proactive. What can we do proactively to teach our kids through play when we're using our entire brains, right? And so, I, so say I know my child is going to have a really hard time at bedtime. So maybe around 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock when we're having a good time, we say, hey, let's practice our bedtime routine. And what does that look like? And we run through it at a, not a scary time, not a time when they're already tired. And then when it's time for bedtime, we say, oh, my gosh, remember what we practiced? Let's see if we can do it just like that, and I will help you through it. So we want to kind of set up, set their life up for success for those moments that you know as a parent they are going to struggle with that. And you know what? Bedtime is a hard transition, especially kids from hard places. I mean, if you think about it, most of the kids that come to me through um, working with kids that have been um, through DCFS – most of their hard stuff happens at night. Mm -hmm. So nighttime can be very scary. We teach what we call life value scripts, and all they are little two- to three-word phrases that we teach our kids so that we can develop neural pathways that are easy to remember. When your child has flipped their lid and they're using their – they're in their amygdala, that fear flight center, they are not going to process language. So if your kid's doing something that you don't like and you launch into a huge lecture of all the reasons why they shouldn't be doing that, you might as well be talking to a wall because they do not have the language center to even process what you are saying. So what we do is through play and games, we teach these small scripts. And then all you have to say when they start to get a little bit off course is remember gentle and kind or let's do that again with respect. And you can quickly bring them back. We want to give our kids choices Choices gives our kids voice, and voice is what they've lost. So giving kids voices, well, I like to say voices and choices, giving our kids compromises. I know that sounds counterintuitive as parents to give our kids compromise and let them learn how to negotiate, but where else are they going to learn it? We don't want our kids to grow up and find a job that they absolutely hate with a boss that treats them horrible and not know 
how to compromise or to negotiate their needs. So the best place to do that is in the home. But as parents, we I kind of feel like... I would love to hear this program's take on compromise. Because remember, there, there was another program a while ago when it was like... Anyways, the whole concept was that you would give your child choices. But that just assumed every child was a normal functioning children. And I had children with high functioning other things going on and high sensitivity, high sensitivity children. And I had a highly autistic son. What I did was I taught them the art of negotiation and they could negotiate trade deals with any foreign country. I'm quite confident of that at this point in my life. Like they could out negotiate anybody. And so I didn't find that that was the best. And so I I love that you countered it with like, that sounds counterintuitive. I actually went in with, I thought, oh yeah, you know, I was a child that really would have liked to have a say and a voice and, and some input in my life. This will be great. I'll go try it with my kids. But maybe I got a little bit too overactive in that concept, or maybe it was the way it was taught, but, and I'm not sure which it was. It was probably me because I'm Anyway, you're in. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. <laughs> you're human because I, I I'm very excited about things and then I kind of jump in. So I would love to know more about that. Like for parents that that might hear this and and think like giving my child a, a compromise. Like is it limited to like based on age? Like on age, it's so like you're would going you like to, to wear this out, outfit or that outfit. Like it's two outfits. You're not giving them the whole wardrobe to choose from. You're going to limit it to your child's developmental uh, capacity. Mm-hmm. So, and we know that kids that have experienced trauma can be half less or half um, of their age developmentally. So if you have a six-year-old that has experienced trauma, you might be working with a two to three-year-old developmentally. So your choices for that child are going to be limited on what you know that child can process. Mm-hmm. So as a child, as a parent, as a caregiver, you're still in charge and you set these boundaries, right? And so the negotiation and the choices, they should all be within the boundaries, within that perimeter that you as the caregiver has set based on that child's capabilities. You don't want to give a child too much power. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do with that. It's They're going to crash and burn if you do that. Mm-hmm. But you're going to develop and you're going to look and say, you know, maybe I've kind of been hard in this area and I can maybe push my boundary out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But their voices are in their choices and their compromises, their negotiation. It's all going to still fit within your boundaries and perimeters that you've mm-hmm. set for that child. Does that yeah. answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm sure it, there's a lot of detail within that for exactly why people should maybe look you up and go to your training, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, this is just so hard to like throw it all in. This and is one the hour. teaser. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of the teaser. Okay. We're going to take one more break and come back and continue the conversation about correcting. Be right back. Okay, Amy, so we're loving this, learning about choices, um, empowering, paying attention to the environment and also the body and kind of these things. Tell us a little bit more about the correcting side of things. 
Okay, so we've just to recap, we were talking about our first strategy of our correcting principles, and those are proactive. So these are the things that we're doing when we are in a good place with our kid, when we can play, when our brain, when their brains are fully engaged, when we are also fully engaged. And these proactive strategies should be done both when we are in a good place. So if you start to feel like you're losing connection during those proactive times, which we call nurture groups, then take a break and find yourself again because we want it to be a connecting and a positive experience. And then we also have what we call redos. Um, And so we want that child to be able to say, hey, you know, I did it wrong the first time and that's okay because I can learn how to do it the correct way. We're going to walk our kids through that. So when I picked you up from school the other day and you were mad and you slammed the door and you called me a bad word, right, that kind of hurt my feelings. So today we're going, we're going to go back out to the car and we're going to practice it in, in a nice way. And then after that, we're going to maybe go and make an ice cream cone or watch a show that, that you want to watch together. We're going to make it kind of a connecting thing. It's not a scary thing. It's not a fearful thing. So that's our first um, strategy. Our second re- strategy strategy will be the responsive. So the responsive is kind of what do we do when the car is careening down the hill on fire and the brakes aren't working, right? This is going somewhere. We don't know how to handle it. So we use what we call the ideal response. And so that is an acronym. It means immediate. That means I'm going to handle this situation as quickly as possible. It's not one of those things where we can say, well, wait till your dad gets home. We're going to handle this quickly. Then we're going to handle it directly. TBRI is not something you can do from the couch. You're going to go directly to your kids. You're going to be in their vicinity. You're going to behavior match them. And you're going to be one-on-one with those, with those gentle eyes that we just talked about. E is for efficient. So we're going to make sure as caregivers we are applying as much I don't want to say force, that's the wrong word, but as much discipline as we need to that matches what what was happening in the first place. So in other words, we aren't going to take an elephant gun to a fly, right. right, which we tend to do. So our kids might make a sassy remark or they might roll their eyes at us. And depending on what's happened to us this day, we might be like and fly off the handle and all of a sudden go into our parental rage when it was just really a small little thing that we could handle very easily um, and get our kids back on track. So with the efficient, we also have levels of response. So we have four levels of response. The first one is playfulness. We can handle most, I'd say 90% of behavior with a playful nudge. Right. So my kid's going to say, I need you to pick me up at four o'clock after school because I have to take a test. And I can quickly say, whoa, Nellie, like, I am the mother who gave birth to you. Let's try it again with respect and in a playful way. Um, And she could say, oh, I'm sorry. Can you please pick me up at four o'clock after school? And I'm going to say yes. As soon as she complies, I'm back to I'm just going to go right back into my playfulness. The second response is going to be structure. So this is when I say the playfulness doesn't work. And so now I have to say, hey look at me. I need you to ask me with respect. And at this point, I know that their brain is, their upstairs brain is starting to get a little bit offline. So I'm going to be a little bit slow and I'm going to give them some time to process what I'm saying and process what they can say back. Uh, My my friend Amanda, she gives a good example of her kid throwing the ball at home and she says, you need to stop throwing that ball and then he'll throw it a couple more times. 
And at first she would say, oh, my gosh, I asked you to stop and you did it two more times. And the son is thinking, no, you asked me to stop and I stopped. Mm -hmm. Right. It just took him a little bit longer to process what she said um, and then to comply. And then our third is going to be calming. And so this is when I would say to my daughter, I need you to say that again respectfully, please. And she says, I don't want to say it. You know, I don't want to. I hate you. Don't you want me to get a good grade in class? I guess you don't want to. And and she starts to cry and panic. And all of a sudden, she's a heap on the floor. At this point, as a caregiver, I know, whoa, something is happening. And it has nothing to do with me. Right. And my job as her caregiver is to be her co-regulator. And so I am going to abort what my concern is at that time. And my only job is to calm her down and to get her back, get her brain back online. Right. So whatever that looks like with her, if I'm just holding her, if it's what do you need? When's the last time you had something to drink? Can I get you a snack? Now, we're not going to completely dismiss the behavior. When I get her back, I'm going to say, let's try that again. Because when that happened, this is how I felt. So can we try that again? And I'm going to lovingly walk her back through that. And then our last level of response would be protective. And this is a really hard one. Um, And TBRI really doesn't give you a lot um, to go on because every state is going to be different. But uh, based on laws and guidelines. But this is when you have a child that can be violent. And sometimes you need to protect that child. You need to protect yourself. You need to protect anyone else in the vicinity. And so that usually includes a hold. Um, and that will just change to gar- regarding on where you live. So if you have a child who tends to be violent, we would just advise that you look up what is appropriate, what's, what you can do, and get that training that you need. So that is the E for efficient in our ideal response. Then we have action-based, and that is that we want to create a new neural pathway in that brain, and the best way to do that is help our kids have some action to that. And so that's going to be going back to the to the scene of the crime in parentheses and having them reenact that the right way so that they can see, hey, I'm a good kid, and I really do know how to go, do, it, do it the right way. And then L is my most favorite, L of the ideal response, and that is leveled at the behavior and not the child. No matter what our child does, no matter what behaviors they have, they have to know and they have to see it in our face and in our eyes that they are precious and that their behavior does not define their worth. And so that is one of the most important things that you can do to a kid is to to love your kid in the rainstorm as well as in the sunshine. Okay, this is powerful in like a whole a parenting class, a caregiving class, a trauma-informed class. I'm, I'm thinking teachers could benefit from this. Clearly, mm-hmm. we've, we mentioned parents. So again, it's TBRI is the acronym. Let's say I'm hearing this and I'm loving this. Where do I learn more? I know your website is myhealinghome.org. Will that take me to more training? Are there places that I can be trained myself in this? Or is it just, hey, go read the book? Yeah. So of course you could read the book, The Connected Child, and there's a second book called The Connected Parent as well. But if you would like more information from us, you can look at um, myhealinghome.org. And if you hit slash events, you will see a few events that we have coming up and some classes that we have. Our most exciting thing right now is that we do two conferences a year and we have our fall conference coming up and that is called our My Healing Home Caregiving Community Conference. And so this is a conference for anyone who is a caregiver. 
if you work with children at any level, if you are a parent, if you work in the youth with your church, if you are a teacher, if you are in a government entity and work with children, you will want to attend this conference. Um, It will be November 18th at the C.R. Hamilton Complex in Riverton. And we would love to see you there. We have discount tickets, early bird tickets, until October 1st. And it really isn't a lot. Your lunch is included in that. Um, and it is normally $45, but until October 1st, it's $25. So, oh, wow. so 25 grab those. You can't even buy lunch I for know. 25 I know. I know. So luckily, deal. we have some really great okay. people. November 18th in Riverton, Utah. Of course, if you're listening outside of the greater Wasatch Front area, the website, the book, the links will take you to all the places. Maybe there's a class or a workshop in their area as well. This I'm loving this. I think there's just so many... Um, so love, many nuggets you yeah. shared that I just want to go. I want to learn more about that. I want to. I'm I'm practicing this. It's not bedtime for my little kiddo. It's dropping my kindergartner off at school. I wish it's I could have so a redo hard. on my we parenting practice. with my. Could we just kids. redo the whole thing? <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I did my best. Of course, I did. Right. And they're great children, and they're all productive citizens, and all all the things are good. But, you know, sometimes I, I hear these things and I just think, oh, where was this when I, just, I was? I hadn't done my own healing yet, really, honestly. And that's a, a, an important step as well in yeah. order to be able to enact these kind of concepts. But, um, you know, I healed along the, the journey and, and that's part of life. It is. And that's that's part of the beauty of life. So tell us, Amy, as we wrap things up, just kind of your your most basic definition or what does resilience mean to you? Mm, well, since I'm a brain nerd, when you think about resilience, we talk about how resilient the brain is and the brain will, the brain will help you survive. I work with kids all the time with survival brain, resilient brains. However, I want to add to that and say resilience is not just picking yourself back up and carrying on and surviving. It is being mindful enough to say, Hey, I do not want this to negatively impact my life and negatively impact those around me and getting the help that you need to heal. And and then also taking that another step and saying, I have walked through this pain before and that has given me the ability to walk with others in their pain. You can only sit with someone in their pain as much as you have learned how to sit with your own pain. Absolutely. Powerful. I love 100% it. 100% true. I'm writing it down as fast as I can. 100% true. I love that. I want to thank you so much for coming on. These concepts are important. And I I feel like just from hearing you share about it and from doing the work that I do with people, just by coming to this class and learning these concepts, they will start to heal some of their own hurts and traumas that they may not have even recognized that they didn't get addressed in their childhood. Right. And trauma doesn't have to be you're from the orphanage. We all have our own difficulties and things. Yeah. 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 We all have our hurts and wants and needs and desires and some that weren't met. And, and that's just, that is part of life. And I love what you said about resilience. It's not actually about gutting it out. We talk to a lot of people and some, some people have wanted to come on the show, but then they, they talk to me and they're, they're like, I don't really actually feel like I'm resilient. I'm just surviving and getting by. And, and so I've been able to work with some of those people to help them one, be able to see where they are resilient and two, be able to teach them some concepts of how to become more resilient so that they can share their story and, and it be authentic. And so I really appreciate you coming on today. This is a great program. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you came on and educated us and our 
listeners about it. It's for sure. I'm, I'm sure all of our listeners have enjoyed this as well. If you are listening, thank you for tuning in again. We hope you'll go find us on your favorite podcast platform and give us a like and a rating and a review. It helps us know how to improve the show and also how to get the word out about the show. And as always, if you're listening, we would love to have you share your experiences with resilience and the journeys you've taken to get you there. You can reach out to us through a social media, Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. On Facebook, you'll find a quick little button where you can click to schedule a phone call with Michelle and talk about what story you might share from your life lessons to help with the rest of us as we build our own resilience. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their life. Have a great day. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.